There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is someone that I've respected and admired for a very long time. Chad Hennings believes that in order to achieve a legacy of excellence, one must live a life of integrity and purpose. In his words, excellence isn't a destination, it's an identity. Chad Hennings has lived this message through a nine-year NFL career and three Super Bowl championships with my beloved Dallas Cowboys. 45 combat missions as a U.S. Air Force pilot flying an A-10 Warthog in the Persian Gulf, and as an accomplished businessman in commercial real estate. Chad has taken this message around the world, sharing it with distinguished audiences ranging from Fortune 500 companies to host of government agencies and respected nonprofits. He's also a philanthropic leader in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, serving on several nonprofits that work with at-risk families and veterans. Chad is the founder of Wingmen Ministries, an organization that encourages discipleship and mentorship of men. Chad Hennings, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, good to be on with you this Thank you, Chad. And, and first of all, thank you for your service to our country uh, and a little bit of a lower level, but not so much. Thanks so much for your three Super Bowl championships. <laughs> my, my honor, my pleasure. <laughs> so you're from Elberon, Iowa, which I'm told is between Keystone and Vining and just down the road from Dysart. Those don't sound like very big places. Tell us about how you grew up you know, with your family and Elberon, how it shaped you and influenced who you are. Yeah, population of Elbron is probably about 150 people. It's more like a village than, than a town, but that's probably typical of most smaller towns in the state of Iowa, all predominantly farming community towns. But I grew up on a farm at the time. It was about a 950 acre farm. We raised corn to support a feedlot operation for, for cattle. And I grew up on a family farm that is, you know, it's been in our family for 150 plus years. My family settled that part of Eastern Iowa, you know, starting back in the 1850s. So, you know, I grew up with learning the great American work ethic, working alongside my father, my brothers, my grandfather. I had a lot of extended family in the area. A phenomenal upbringing. I, you know, learned the great American work ethic and learned what it meant to, you know, work with your hands. It, it was a phenomenal upbringing. We talked about uh, multi-generational there. You were one generation in a multi-generational structure, for lack of a better word. Did the cohesiveness of being part of that sort of family teach you things that you likely would not have learned or gained otherwise? Oh, most certainly. You know, I look back on, you know, our nation's experience and, and the ability to have mentors, the ability to be discipled, working, you know, in an agrarian society alongside your, your father, you know, with your brothers, as I said, your grandfather, you had the opportunity to have a lot of conversations. You had a lot of opportunity to actually watch. It's not just what I say, but watch how I do, how I conduct my business. And to spend that amount of time day in, day out, every day of the year, you know, aside from when we were in school, working with my, my family, it, it taught me a lot about, about life and about experiences that I would have never have had, had it was just you know, my father going to work someplace in a nine-to-five job in an office. Not surprisingly, you were a football standout in high school, 
that wasn't your only sport, was it? No. When you go to a small school, you, you pretty much have the opportunity, which I think is awesome, to be able to play multiple sports. So I grew up wrestling. I grew up playing baseball. I grew up, you know, in track. So basketball. I, I mean, I played every sport, and I think that helped me, you know, ultimately as I grew in my athletic prowess to when I ultimately became a Dallas Cowboy, that background of being more of an athlete than a football player helped. You know, that's an interesting point. You know, in today's world, kids at such a young age seem to get so, I'll say, tunneled into one specific sport as opposed to playing, you know, three sports to your point, four or five sports. And so do you think that affects the longevity of, of kids being athletes going forward? Is it, is it good? Is it bad? What are your overall thoughts on that? I, it definitely impacts being a single sport. And now with the advent of select sports where parents pay sometimes a tremendous amount of money for their kids to be able to travel and to play at, you know, certainly at more of an elite level. But what this does, when you specialize in a sport, you're utilizing only certain movements and certain parts of your body, your, your musculoskeletal system, that it leaves you a preponderance for potential injury. And unlike how I grew up, I played everything, you know, so you're utilizing you know, holistic body movements. You're not getting pigeonholed into one, one sport. So for me, for example, wrestling, wrestling helped me in my hand-eye coordination. It helped understand leverage, you know, playing baseball, hand-eye coordination, basketball, certainly hand-eye coordination, working on quickness. And that all helped me ultimately for when I picked my sport, football in college, you know, to, to excel and to exceed in that area. So you're an all-state football tight end and a state champion heavyweight wrestler. Did success come easily for you? you know, did you have any failures along the way? <laughs> you know, I, I laugh at that because I think every athlete that has ever particularly played at a professional level or have had some semblance of success, they have learned more through their failures and their obstacles that they've had to overcome than certainly any successes. I've played with a lot of athletes at an elite professional level where, you know, they rely purely on their athletic talent and it, you know, got them to that level, but it didn't sustain them. You know, at some point in time, as an old coach of mine once said, it only catches up to you when it catches up to you and it always catches up to you. So for me, it was, I learned more through my inability to overcome and the losses and um, the aspects of what it took in the weight room and the, you know, running excess sprints or just getting in cardiovascular shape. I learned more about character, integrity, sportsmanship through the struggle. And, and again, that's, you know, I read a survey the other day or a study the other day that said that people learn more from the journey, the process along the way when you set goals than actually accomplishing the goal itself. So for me, it's, it's all about the journey and it's about the process and it's about living life because that's what life's about. Colleges sought you out, including your home state universities, Iowa and Iowa State, and offered you full ride scholarships. Why did you choose the Air Force Academy instead? You know, was it football or desire to serve the country or some combination of the two? It was uh, all the above. I wanted to play uh, Division I college football. You know, I wasn't highly recruited. I got nibbles from Iowa State, Iowa, you know, for in-state. But I wanted to have an experience that would be unlike 
going to a traditional institution of higher learning. So I wanted to have that challenge. I wanted to see, quote unquote, if I had the right stuff by going to uh, a college or university that was going to challenge me academically, most certainly challenge me athletically, but also challenge me in regards to who I was as a person, as a leader, you know, as a follower, as, as a, you know, as a patriot, as a citizen of the United States. And it gave me the opportunity to, to serve and to have um, an opportunity to have a job <laughs> after I graduated Professional athletics, when I, you know, graduated from high school, went into college, was was never even on my radar. Certainly, it was a dream, but um, but I knew that I would have the opportunity to serve my country in some capacity, whether as a pilot or whatever occupation I chose in the Air Force, and and that's why I chose to go to the United States Air Force Academy. What's the process to apply for and be accepted by the Air Force Academy? It's like every government entity; it's a lot. <laughs> bureaucracy. You have to go the amount of paperwork that you have to fill out and writing essays. You have to give, you know, make sure you're physically qualified first and foremost too by uh, visiting a doctor for physicals. But most certainly you have to get a a nomination through your senator from your state or your local congressman to be able to go. So it's highly competitive. They typically have a primary and then an alternate they can have as many alternates as, as they need, but I mean, it's basically you're taking one for sure from every congressional district. So it's, it's a highly competitive process. We titled this podcast, Excellence Isn't a Destination, It's an Identity. When we spoke a few weeks ago, I, I love that mindset, which is something that you talk about and something that's on your website. As part of that journey, in order to become better people, we need to become self-aware of who we are. How do we do that without becoming self-absorbed and self-centered so that we truly become our best selves? You know, one of the doc or one of the quotes I like is I think Socrates said, wisdom is the knowledge that you don't know everything. And that's where for me, realizing that living excellence and, and life, it's it's not a destination, it's a journey, it's a process. And, you know, along that journey, you, you have, as we alluded to before, the ups and downs, the pains and joys that come with living that fulfilled life. And in exchange for that, it's a matter of, you know, knowing that you don't know everything, knowing that you've never fully arrived, there's an aspect of humility that comes with that. And the realization that in the mindset of that, it's a growth mindset. It's, it's I can always improve. I can always get better. I can be a better person. And, and to achieve that, you have to have some sense of self-awareness knowing that, Hey, you know, the, the proverbial, my, my excrement does think that, <laughs> that, um, that I don't, I don't have all the answers. And that gives you, you can allude to, to leadership. That same thing is that, you know, as a leader, you, you have to be willing to listen to others. You have to be willing to take that, the information to be able to listen to those under your command to realize that, you know, to lead them, you have to show that you care first and foremost, and that you're self-aware that you know your own shortcomings, you know, your strengths and your weaknesses. It seems so often the good people have a crisis of confidence. How do we build confidence in ourselves and in the next generation? Build confidence through resiliency and you build resiliency through going through life and experiencing failures, experiencing things in life where you've had to struggle, where if everything comes easy for you, 
there's going to be those times where you're, you are going to be challenged because everybody's going to be challenged, but how you develop that aspect of confidence in yourself and and in your abilities is by knowing that, Hey, I've been there before and that I can work through this and that I have the skill set and the the mental fortitude, the mindset to be able to achieve whatever I I want and whatever path in life that I want. But you know, I, I have to go through it. You know, as the army, a lot of my brethren veterans in the uh, armed forces say, you gotta, you gotta embrace the suck sometimes. And, and that's life. I've heard that statement a few times. So uh, I, I totally understand and can appreciate that. So how does leadership form us as individuals? Where do we go right? And where do we go wrong as leaders and then followers? How do we form leadership as individuals? I think, um, Realizing that first and foremost, that aspect of self-awareness and realizing for one, two, that to lead, you have to lead from the front, not from the rear. It's not about just barking orders and telling, giving people directives. It's also setting the example and how you set that example. And that's where character, virtue, integrity comes into play. Those aspects of, am I humble? Am I courageous? Um, do I have that aspect of commitment, that stick to all those different, am I truthful? Can people trust me? And that's, you know, to be a leader, you have to be, have that aspect, as I alluded, self-awareness, but yet realize the communication piece of where, who are you leading and where are you leading them to? What's your mission? How do we know when we've got, when we've achieved what we've set out to, to accomplish? You know, all those aspects are rolled into being, to being a leader. And, um, you know, everybody is a leader in some capacity, in my opinion, even if it's as I've had teenagers that for boys, if even if it's just making a personal hygiene decision (laughs) hour today, you know, that that aspects is is leadership, taking initiative and, and stepping out. I'm laughing because my youngest, our son, he's just turned 11. And so the, the personal hygiene thing is definitely low on his radar. So I'll tell him, you told him to be a leader and step up and shower and use deodorant. Totally appreciate that. Is is leadership something that is innate in certain individuals, or do you think it's something that can be taught? I think it's both. I think it's, is it the the genetic thing or is it the environment thing? I think that certain people have, are born with, you know, certain characteristics and traits, personal characteristics and traits. Um, They're, they're just wired that way to, to be, Leadership may come more natural, but I think at the same token, you know, since life is a journey and it's a process that you can continue to improve, everybody can, can improve upon their innate abilities that, that, you know, they're blessed with, that they're God-given abilities. So we can all get better. Some, I think, are just probably born or just more innate to be born as leaders. And how does leadership from the parental level all the way up to the president of the United States shape our culture and our country, especially today as the new code seems to you that everyone gets a participation ribbon and we protect our kids from challenges, failure, and hurt feelings? You know, I'll just start off as a parent. Um, our ability, our, our role, our job as parents is to raise our kids to be fully functional adults. And in in life, in adulthood, there are no participation trophies. Our kids have to learn failure. They have to learn, you know, sportsmanship. They have to learn about life, you know. And there was a study uh, that was done or a book written by a gentleman named Jonathan Haidt, 
and called The Coddling of the American Mind, where he talked about millennials, which you're referring to, the participation trophy generation. And they said that the one thing that they missed missed and the one thing that as parents we should instruct our kids if you want the most resilient kids allow them unsupervised play what that means is to go on when they're out on the playground to go out and not have a teacher or a parent or a, a helicopter mom watching over them if there's a conflict allow the kids to work it out allow them to be able to figure out on their own how to communicate that it doesn't always resort to violence or that sometimes how you can use your words to deflate a, you know, a potential conflict or how you, on the playground, how you win graciously, how you lose graciously, that you, you learn about life. I think every important lesson that I learned in life, as the saying goes, I learned in kindergarten. You know, it's all the social skills. So what I think it's been our mistake, I'll include myself as we, but I don't include myself in the larger group, but the context of parents that we have tried to prevent our kids from going through pain and trial and turmoil when in fact that is the thing that they need the most in life is to experience that in our home where it's safe where you can talk them through. And again, as a parent, that's what I do with my kids is I would continue to give them increased responsibility and as far as expectations, and then if something happened, um, you know, I gave them guardrails that if they went outside those guardrails where I had to discipline them, discipline or disciple them, it was like, hey, you realized I told you this is where you needed to operate within these guardrails. You went outside of that and you realized this is, I told you before, this is going to be the punishment that's affiliated with that. And you need to be held accountable for that. Do you understand? You know, yes. So that is, you start to treat them and communicate with them that there are consequences in life for, for action. And I think that's where we need to get back to as parents and in society. And that, you know, what is true at the local level is true at a national level. So when individuals you see in our society today make crimes, you don't just let them out. I mean, they committed something. And if they're found guilty, they need to be punished for that. There needs to be accountability for that. And when that is thrown out the window, that's why, unfortunately, I think we see a lot of chaos in certain municipalities around our nation is because there isn't that accountability. You just said something a minute ago that I thought was very interesting. You said discipline or disciple. And it's the same letters with a few extra. You know, can you expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah, um, I, I, I have several tenets that I gave my kids that, you know, I call them proverbs of life. And there was four of them that if they got these down, you know, they're good. And one of them is that I said that God disciplines, there's a verse that God disciplines those whom he loves, but discipline is disciple, God disciples. And that's why your mom and I disciple or discipline you. It's a biblical principle. And that's where it, um, you know, the roots of the two words are, are the same. Discipline, disciple, you know, it's, it's coming under authority of something. And that's we all operate under authority of something. It's just our choice and our free will to discern which one of those things we, we fall under. I love that. I hope you don't mind if I steal that phrase from you. Hey, have at it. You bet. So being a leader is more than who can bark orders the loudest. What part do humility and integrity play in leadership? I alluded to that a little bit before in our 
conversation that to me, to be a leader, you, you have to be humble. You're in, those under your command or under your leadership or under your leadership umbrella have to know that you care. And a part of that is empathy. And a part of that is, again, realizing that I don't have all the answers. We're, we're, we're in this together. And when you bark orders and you, you kind of leave from behind, I'll say that that's not leadership. And people, there's that lack of trust is because, you know, we're out in front. We're doing all this stuff while you're just in the back. You don't have any, quote, unquote, skin in the game. So for leadership, self-awareness and be humble and may your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm a believer in the importance of servant leadership, as it sounds like I think you might be as well. As I was thinking about our conversation last week, it crossed my mind that the military's culture doesn't or maybe it can't allow much room for servant leadership. Is that a fair assumption? Why or why not? Um, military's culture, I, th- I think truly that in essence is you do need to be a servant leader. You do need to think of others before yourself. That That's the whole premise of the military is raising your hand, saying that you gave an oath that you're going to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, protecting it against um, both domestic as well as outside forces that want to do harm to our country. So are you willing to put yourself into harm's way? I was personally, I was deployed twice for three months away from my family in a foreign land because I raised my hand and I think wanting to support and defend our, our nation and its interests. And um, whether you agree with our foreign nation's foreign policy or, or not, our military is there to be at the whim of our politicians and our diplomats and to use violence as a last resort if needed. And when you're willing to serve in the military, I think that is the ultimate example of servant leadership because you're willing to give it all in support of, of a mission and a purpose to protect others. Bigger purpose, bigger calling. Amen. Your faith is the cornerstone of your life. Is that something that also came from your upbringing? And what does it mean to who you are as a man, a husband, a parent, and other aspects of your life? Um, I attribute a lot of that to, to my parents and to my extended family, my grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. My faith is my identity. And I'll, I'll say this. What you do does not define who you are as an individual. I've been asked, you know, when I was a young man, you know, who are you? You know, what do you do? I mean, who are you? And I'll say, you know, I'm Chad Hanks football player. I'm Chad Hanks fighter pilot. But I realized that um, our occupations change. And particularly for this generation, they can change frequently. So that's obviously not who you are. So it's for me, the identity is, is that worldview, that filter in which you process all your thoughts, your words, and your experiences through that, you know, provide that meaning, that purpose and impact. Again, why? What, why you do what you do? And that all comes down to your identity. Who are you? And for me, my identity is as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a, as a Christian. And that's the filter that I process all, everything through, um, through that. And, and that, it's through that prism that I find my meaning and, and find my purpose and the reason why I'm called to do what I do. You entered Air Force Flight School in June 1988 and were selected by the Dallas Cowboys in the 1988 NFL Draft. Your commander wouldn't allow you to have any contact with the Cowboys. Do you have any regrets then or later on about serving the Air Force because it prevented you from joining the Cowboys right away? 
No. And, you know, kind of clarify that a little bit. They didn't allow the, the media to, to come in and start asking about when I was going to come play the Cowboys. And to give some context to that, I went through pilot training at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is just about an hour and a half outside the Dallas Fort Worth area. And, you know, during, particularly during the fall of the year, uh, media in Dallas found out that I was just an hour and a half away and I had been a draft pick and everybody, you know, Outland Trophy winner. Why aren't you playing for the Cowboys? So I would get these phone calls and I'm trying to figure out how to fly jets. And my commanders in their wisdom discerned that this was, you know, pressure, undue pressure and a distraction that, that I didn't need when I'm sitting there trying to figure out, you know, how to be the best pilot that I could be. So, but with that experience, again, for me, it was probably the most important lesson that I learned in my young professional career was that aspect when I alluded to before about identity. Who was I? And for me to be a man of character, I raised my hand and I committed to the Air Force. I'd serve a minimum of five years, which was the minimum service academy, but I chose to up that to eight years because I wanted to fly jets. And I made that commitment prior to being drafted by the Dallas Cowboys and prior to having the success I did on the gridiron at the Air Force Academy. So for me, it was a matter of, okay, put your money where your mouth is. You, you want to be an individual of character. You want to be an individual of commitment and, and that poor people can trust you. You got to follow through. And, but, 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 but I say that I knew that in my, my head, but in my heart, I wanted to compete at the next level. I wanted to see, quote, unquote, if I had the right stuff to play professionally and to play for the Dallas Cowboys. So it took me a while to reconcile that. And, but through that period of time of, of struggle, again, developing that resiliency of struggling through that aspect of who am I, I realized a lot about myself and about that, that life is a choice and that we have choices in life, so choose wisely. I've read that because of your height, you were only eligible to fly the F-111, F-15 Eagle, or the A-10. What are the similarities and differences between those aircraft, and why did you ultimately choose the A-10? Well, I didn't get a choice as to what I got. You, you received a, your pilot training assignment. Once you finish pilot training, they give you basically what jet you're going to fly. But the difference between those jets were like night and day. The F-111 was a low-level interdiction supersonic at 100 feet above the ground, potentially deliver nukes, you know, deep within, you know, Soviet territory. F-15 was an air superiority fighter aircraft, think top gun, dogfighting up in the air. And the A-10, which for me was the plane that I flew, was the best defensive lineman's dream. You fly low, it was slow, but it packed a mean punch. <laughs> it was like getting into a knife fight with tanks on the ground. And that mission, I'm thankful, and again, by the wisdom of the instructor pilots that I had, that's the assignment that I received because it just fit me, who I was from a personality standpoint, so well. And the mission was fun. I could fly over, you know, I was based out of the UK and the England, but we forward deployed to Germany um, once, if not twice a month. And during those times, we could fly back in the day anywhere in Germany at 500 feet. And there are certain areas we could go down to a hundred feet. And just to be able to experience that, to fly the way we did it, um, it set me up um, for success and how I approached different problems and obstacles in life was through that, those experiences that I had of flying. 
We've been talking to Chad Hennings, and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Do you dream about success but wonder how to get there? Hillary DeCesar and her guests will reveal how they relaunched into lives they only dreamt about. Their stories will inspire and surprise you and ignite your inner sparks. The Relaunch, Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Chad Hennings. Chad is a former Air, Fa- Air Force combat pilot, three time Super Bowl champion, author, and accomplished entrepreneur. Chad, we were talking before the break about your deployments in the Persian Gulf. In 1991, because the military was reducing its budgets, you were released from the remainder of your Air Force commitment, and that freed you to join the Dallas Cowboys. How did your military service prepare you in terms of resilience and the ability to adapt for this suddenly entirely different life? Everything. I mean, everything. People ask, I've asked, been asked that question, what were the similarities between the two? And I said, it's been a lot of similarities between being in a fighter squadron and being in a locker room. It prepared me from a physical aspect. Being deployed as I was for six months, when you're flying those missions, you're away from family and friends, you're in a quote-unquote combat zone, and all there is to do is when you're not flying, you work out, you uh, have a few beers, you eat a lot of carbohydrates, and you bulk up. And that was able to do that. But then from a mental aspect, um, here I was four years later, I've formed 45 missions, you know, in Northern Iraq in support of operation provide comfort. Um, I had flown, I, you know, I had 
you know, five, 600 plus hours in a jet over a two year period. So I got to fly quite a bit. And, um, in those experiences that I had, you know, I matured, I went from a college, you know, athlete student. And then four years later, you know, I'm a, a vested combat veteran and, you know, with a maturity level, I had been in some high intense situations and have been tested for that aspect of resiliency and, and commitment and et cetera. So for me, and, and then, then just alone, let alone planning the missions, when you would fly as a flight lead, I'd walk through, this is, you know, this is a weather into target area. These are the areas that we're our mission. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. And this is if something bad happens to us, how are we going to communicate between my wingman and myself? How am I going to communicate to you know, my superiors to get further insight? You know, how are we going to make different adjustments? And a lot of times that we would go into a target area, you would brief a specific mission and you get there and the whole tactical situation has changed. So now we have to, to adapt. And we always said that flexibility is the key to air power. And then when I transitioned to the Cowboys, it was pretty much the same thing from a physical perspective. I was used to that high intensity working out. Um, I was used to that, that, that rotation of, you know, kind of putting it out there, living somewhat on the edge and then a preparation when you go for practice or a game time, you have certain goals you want to accomplish or a certain game plan you want to go out there. And then at halftime, you have to be able to make certain adjustments because the whole situation or the opposing team's offense, they added some new wrinkles and how are we going to adapt? You know, I'm on the line, how I'm communicating with my fellow defensive linemen were similar to how I'm communicating either through hand signals or through just different code words or whatnot, how we're communicating with one another, you know, to accomplish our mission. So that was it. We were very, both entities were very focused um, very driven and um, the similarities between the two. I could go on for quite a while and talking about those, but it, it was a, it, the hardest transition for me was just the weather. You know, I go from not um, sweating hardly in Europe where it's 78 degrees in the summertime to now going through training camp in Austin, Texas, where it's 98 degrees and 60% humidity. That was the biggest adjustment for me. Hottest weather I've ever experienced was Dallas in August, so I can totally understand that. And I wasn't wearing, you know, shoulder pads or a helmet. Yeah, that's right. I always laugh and tell people that God did not mean for man to play football in Texas in July. <laughs> but that's tell, we tell Mr. Jones that. Yeah, well, now they go out to Oxnard, right? They get the cool ocean breeze off of California. <laughs> they have indoor practice facilities, so we got screwed. <laughs> you were older than the typical rookie when you joined the team. Rookies can be treated kind of badly. Did you get the, you know, air quote, rookie treatment or were you treated with a bit more respect considering you were coming from the cockpit of a fighter jet? No, uh, my relationships were totally different because I, quote unquote, I tell the laugh at the guys that I, you know, I had a real job before I came here. And I was a 26, turned 27 my rookie year. And I'm four, potentially five, maybe even six years older than a lot of the other rookies there. And, you know, the guys in my draft class, I had Michael Irvin, you know, Ken Norton Jr. were in my draft class. And these guys are now in their, what is it, their fourth or going in their fifth season. You know, they're vested veterans. And and for me, the, the thing that I always talk about to the individuals is that there is a, a commonality, a similarity between the two entities, as I alluded before, but there's an intrigue. Everybody in that locker room 
care less about what I did, you know, my senior year, the stats and accolades that I had, but they want to know what it was like to fly jets. What was it like to kind of put it out there, you know, to quote unquote, put yourself into harm's way. And I make that same distinction that I talked to a lot of my, you know, fellow veterans or active duty guys. And, and, you know, there's intrigued about, Hey, what was it like to be in the locker with the Cowboys? You know, how did, how did you do this? So there's, there's that mutual respect and intrigue and, and for me, I was, you know, I walked in at, um, you know, people, I was kind of an anomaly and, and people wanted to know, you know, those other experiences. So I, I didn't get the typical rookie treatment. You mentioned a moment ago, you were 26 when you joined, but then you had a nine year career. That's a long time in the NFL to begin with. And you were a defensive end, which obviously is extremely physical. I think that's really just an incredible testament to you, your ability and your durability. We're going to talk shortly about your faith and how you've stayed strong in spirit. How do you remain strong of body and do you feel the physical effects of the NFL today? Um, well, the latter part of physical effects, I think for any time that you've played the game, and you know, everybody has arthritis. I've got arthritic, every joint in my body is arthritic. Um, you know, and it's coming to that point in my life as I'm in my late fifties, I have a lot of former teammates that, you know, knee replacements, hip replacements, shoulder replacements, spinal fusions. It's, it, it, it goes on and on and on. But I was very fortunate that I think I had good genes growing up on a farm and being that good, good German stock person <laughs> that was created, you know, to, to run into things. Literally, you know, I've got arthritis, but for me, it's now it's an active part of that. If you don't use it, you lose it, that I have to stay active. And I, you know, exercise, I don't go in the weight room and try to squat or bench press the whole place. It's just being smart about how you go about doing your business. And for me, my quality of life, I feel, feel great. I'm in great shape. And so playing that length of time, I was very fortunate and blessed, but you got to be smart about how you do it. And, and during while I was with the Cowboys too, I, I took real great care of myself and that was part of my workout ethic and my diet and different modalities of treatment that I went through from chiropractic to massage to ice baths, et cetera, that allowed my body to recover. For our listeners, I highly encourage you to watch the video on YouTube because Chad looks like he could suit up for the Cowboys today and, and they might call you up this year. We'll, we'll see what happens. And so, who were some of the favorite people you played with or who coached you and what qualities did they possess that caused you to like them? You know, um, one guy that I'll give props to that we butted heads while we played together, but he was a phenomenal football player, both physically as well as football uh, intellect-wise, was Charles Haley. Charles had the reputation back in the day. Well, he was undiagnosed bipolar when he was going through, so he you never knew what, what Charles was going to show up in the locker room you know, or on the practice field or in the game field that day. But this was a guy who put it out there. I, he is he had tremendous work ethic, tremendous work ethic. And his, his IQ of breaking down offenses and understanding what everybody on the defense was doing was, was second to none. And, you know, he was a little rough around the edges from a motivational standpoint. But, but he was a guy that a lot of us looked up to, really. And, and he was the leader of our group because – he had the gravitas, he had the ethos and the pathos to want to go out there and, and do it. Other players, you know, that I admired, of course, Troy Aikman, you got Michael and 
and Emmett and all the other Hall of Famers, Larry Allen, the guys that I played with, Deion Sanders are one of the best athletes, pure athletes that I've ever been affiliated with. But from coaching standpoint, I, you know, I was drafted by Tom Landry, didn't get a play for Tom, but played for Jimmy Johnson, uh, Barry Switzer, Chan Gailey, and Dave Campbell. I essentially almost, you could equate, I had five head coaches in a nine-year career, four for sure. So for those of you who are listening from a corporate standpoint, that's like having four different president CEOs every couple of years, you know, during that span. So we were very fortunate to have had the success that we did just because of that, that turnover. But that, again, that's a testament to the guys on that team, the cohesiveness, particularly in those early years, that everybody knew their role. I've never, again, I've never been around a group of more selfless individuals than when I was around those guys. They wanted to win, not just win, but win Super Bowls. And it was, looking back now, 30 whatever years later, it was unique. It was a very unique experience. You know, I never thought about how many different head coaches there were during your tenure. And you make a great point that in any organization you're with, whether it be professional sports, business, et cetera, that much change in leadership in that sort of period of time, it's a true testament to your team because we all know everyone's got different leadership styles and, and you know who their favorite executives are going to be underneath them or who their favorite players are going to be. And so for you as a team, that cohesive, as you mentioned, is just phenomenal, which obviously attributes you know tremendously to the, the success of your, of your franchise then. Amen. And, uh, you know, you and I mentioned last week when we spoke, we had Charles Haley on about a year and a half ago. And I encourage our listeners to, to go and watch that show because it's uh, quite entertaining uh, and a little bit of a different conversation that Chad and I are having today. But again, I encourage you to look that show up. And is there anybody in the field that you just couldn't stand and you really wanted to beat them every time you played against them? <laughs> that was, of course, I mean, but the ultimate trigger answer there is the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, just... <laughs> rivalry that we had but back in our, the day it was we had not only the Eagles but it was the 49ers that we competed against year after year particularly in the early 90s was who was going to win the NFC championship and then it was the Green Bay Packers were a big rival um, again who was going to win the NFC championship to get to the Super Bowl but you know of all those teams I would say just because it particularly when you played them at their stadium, at Old Vets Stadium in Philly, that was a tough place to play. I mean, their fans, they're legit. <laughs> your fans, they're they crazy. <laughs> and, um, and that stadium was was a tough place to play. And uh, But, you know, if I had to go with one, I'd, I'd definitely pull the trigger with the, the Eagles. My last football question, and we'll move on. Three Super Bowl championships. What was your most memorable moment as a Dallas Cowboy? You know, people ask which one game. It's kind of like asking me which one of my kids I love more, right? That they were all unique in, the, in themselves. But the game that was probably the most memorable for me was the last one, Super Bowl Thirty against the Steelers. I was fortunate enough to have a couple sacks in that game and just had a good game of rushing the passer, putting pressure on Neil O'Donnell. And he's Larry Brown, who is the MVP, who is our cornerback in the game he had two picks and I said you got those picks because we we made Neil O'Donnell throw off his back foot and he was thrown on the run and you know we made you so we should get the co-MVP <laughs> but um if I had to choose one game it would probably been Super Bowl 30. Tell us about Wingman Ministries. Wingman uh, you know I've alluded to in our conversation 
some of the aspects of issues that, you know, we have as particularly as men in life of just struggling with performance, of struggling with who you are, identity, of struggling with when things don't necessarily go the way you want them to go or the way you need them to go. Who, who do you turn to? Who do you, who do you, do you have those relationships in life where you can be totally transparent? And I didn't, you know, it's very difficult in all transparency. My, my son, when I was playing for the Cowboys, acquired an autoimmune illness and right after the third Super Bowl, Super Bowl 30. And it's not like you can walk into a locker room and just lay it out on guys and say, Hey guys, I'm not holding it together today. My, you know, my son's struggling. I, I don't know what to do and you have to perform at a high level. So that struggle in my life encouraged me to form a, a men's ministry called wingman where it's, men forming those discipleship Christ-centered faith-based masculine relationships where we get into small groups and we hold, you know, we hold each other accountable. There's that aspect of accountability of, of trust, etc. And it's all from a biblical perspective, but you know, we as men just with the whole things that we deal with in our culture today of toxic masculinity about what does it mean to be a man, particularly with young men today, they struggle and, and fatherlessness too of young men growing up without dads that they're literally like a rudderless ship at times. And it's to come alongside them and to walk through life with them and to, you know, just talk through different things with them from a faith-based perspective. It adds meaning and it adds context and it adds purpose to their lives. You just talked about young boys and young men needing that male role model. Would you say that male role model is the same or just important for girls? Oh, I think so too. For my daughter, it's, it's for, you know, they get, they always talk about young ladies wanting to marry a man, just like your old dad. <laughs> and I think for, for kids in particular, it takes two parents to raise a family. It takes a mother and a father. And what they get from their fathers is an aspect of identity of, of that character, integrity, and purpose. You know, they get from typically from moms, they get the aspect of empathy and care and nurturing. And for me, that's what I tried to give to both my kids. I have both a boy and a girl, a daughter and a, and a son. And I wanted my daughter to realize who her father is and how much I, you know, I love and I care for her so that she's not going to want, and she gets to the, she got to the age as a teenager stuff that she's not going to run away to in the arms of some young man and realize who she is first and foremost. And that's where she got that from, you know, from me and from her mother, that aspect of purpose and identity. You're a huge proponent for coaches and kids being involved in team sports and activities. Even though you had a stable home life, how do coaches impact your development? And how do coaches make a difference for kids whose home life isn't the idyllic picture of mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, et cetera? For me, coaches are the last, you know, potentially the last level that uh, can prevent kids from going, quote unquote, into the system. I mean, coaches are so essential because they can be that, that role model, that, that father figure for male coaches um, to their athletes. And coaches, for me, my high school coaches had the biggest impact outside of my parents in my life. My high school football coach changed the trajectory of, of my life. Quick story, I, to my junior, senior year of, of high school, 
my coach sat down, me down and asked me what I wanted to do after, after graduation. I said, you know, I, I really, my goal is I want to play division one college football someplace. You know, I wasn't highly recruited at this point in time, but I got a letter. It was how long ago, a letter, not an email, not electronic <laughs> communication, but a letter from the air force Academy saying, Hey, I think, you know, we're interested in you if you qualify and you can get a nomination to come here. And I told him that, and he took it upon himself that summer to, Put together a highlight reel, a 16 millimeter highlight reel, drive the 900 miles from our hometown area in eastern Iowa to Colorado Springs to the Air Force Academy to hand deliver this film to the coaches there and to say, you need to take a look at this kid. He's something that could contribute to your program and he's the type of kid that you want. And that's how they got, I got on their radar to recruit me and to bring me in. My coach cared about me. I, I mean, I, I can't say enough about my my wrestling coach, Jerry Eric, and my high school football coach, Reese Morgan, and Daryl Schumacher, these guys, I wanted to be like them when I grew up. And that aspect of role modeling, and it wasn't just what they said, it's, it's how they conducted themselves. And that's why coaches today are so important, because a lot of, you know, unfortunately, young people don't have a mother and a father in a home. Amen. Two books that you mentioned to me earlier in our conversation last week, The Boy Crisis by Warren Farrell and John Gray, and Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. They're two very different books with very different topics, but take them one at a time. You know, why do you recommend those books for other people? You know, for me, uh, Mindset in particular, I alluded just in our conversation that, that Mindset, she breaks it down that there's basically two types of people. There's a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Most people, the fixed mindset is, hey, I'm as good as I can be. Um, you know, I'm not going to get any better. And... You know, that's just, that's just life. The growth mindset is, hey, I, I know that I have certain strengths and talents, but I can improve upon things. I can think outside the box and, and how I can continue to improve on a skill set. Maybe I'm not the best piano player. I'm not given that innate ability to do that, but I can work on it still and, and get better. And for me as a parent, what I took from the book was how I communicate with my kids. For example, they talk about if you sit there and you tell your child, oh, you're, you're, the, you're the smartest kid in your class, you're the most beautiful kid, you're the best athlete, you're the best baseball player, football player, you know, oh, you're so strong, whatever. And they come across other kids in their relationships or at school, whatever, that there may be a prettier little girl or there may be a better athlete or there may be somebody smarter than them. And it's kind of like, well, that doesn't matter. You know, personal fixed mindset, I'm done. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I can't compete. I'm not there. Versus those with a growth mindset, how you communicate is, you know, I really appreciate how hard you worked to get that A on that test. Or I really appreciate how hard you're working to improve your baseball skills, your football skills, or whatever. Different mindset with that, but it encourages the work ethic. It encourages them to, to get out and to be whatever they want to be, but it's aspect of, it's a choice. It's, do I choose to work that way? In the boy crisis, what hit me on that was from a father standpoint. They talked about epigenetics, which in there that that when there's not a father in the household, that the telomeres, which are an indication of how long of a life the individual is going to live, no father in the household, there's the telomeres are shortened, meaning that if you don't have a dad, a two-parent household, if you don't have a father in there, it, there's not just emotional ramifications and consequences, but there's also physical because you're living a shorter period of life. 
I don't agree with a lot of the conclusions that they came to in the book, but the data that they had as to why there is a boy crisis today in our culture and why young men are getting beat upon, um, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile read in that case. And sticking with books, you've written three, count them, one, two, three books. Very impressive in its own right, besides your football career. First book, Forces of Character. Next one, It Takes Commitment and then Rules of Engagement. Do you share a brief synopsis of each book and how people in the audience can find them? Sure. Um, you can find them all on my website, chadhennings.com, and uh, Amazon for the latter two. Uh, the f- well, the first one was It Takes Commitment. I wrote that book. It's kind of a biographical book published through Multnomah when I was playing for the Cowboys. And that book was kind of a thing about the concept of commitment, how I try to exemplify commitment in my life. Um, Rules of Engagement, Finding Faith and Purpose in a Disconnected World. That book was written because I wanted to talk to men about kind of the wingman model, why life is a choice, how break it down to two segments, you know, basic training and then active duty, the importance of relationships, how money, um, mindset, all these different things, integrity, character, purpose. And then the last book, Forces of Character, I wanted to show that, again, character was ubiquitous, that's a choice. So I chose to sit down and have conversations with 10 people, some names you'd recognize, Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman, Jason Garrett, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, interviewed an astronaut, former human rights attorney from Communist Romania, survivor of Auschwitz, a uh, CEO from the National Center on Fathering and a homelessness expert, all you know, male, female, up and down the scale of different life experiences. I wanted to show that, again, character is a choice, that it's, it's a model. And every individual's story that's in there, it's amazing the similarities that they've had. They came from all different experience levels, and it's, but they chose to be an individual character. And again, that website is chadhennings.com. You we, have just a, we have just a few minutes left. I'll turn the microphone over to you to take us to close. What's the most important message you'd like to leave with our audience today? You know, uh, thank you, Chris, first of all, for having me on. I would just say that as you're listening to me, what I hope resonates is that aspect of identity. First and foremost, what you do does not define who you are. You need to come to terms with that aspect and to ponder that. Who are you as an individual? Because everybody puts something in front of them, whether they, whether that's their faith, whether that's, you know, the environment, whether that's politics, whether that's, you know, some economic model. We all, as Pascal said, inside man is, is, is a God-sized vacuum that only God can fill, that we try to fill our purpose and who we are with a variety of different things. And that's where I just want to encourage people to sit down and contemplate that because in life, you know, until you get that foundational principle decided upon, the decisions you make will be made in a vacuum, depending upon your emotional status, depending upon whatever the economy is doing, the health, or sometimes it may mean short-term gain, long-term pain, but who you are, your identity doesn't change. It is set in stone. It's set in concrete. Chad Hennings, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. How about them Cowboys? Amen. And thanks to our audience for joining. We're out of time. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.
Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.